Good morning, church. Why don't we stand and read Luke 18 together, beginning at verse 1. Luke 18, verse 1. Now he was telling them a parable to show them that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart, saying, In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect men, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Let's pray. Uh, Father, we are enjoying our series in parables. We've... uh, Learning a lot as we, as we learn your heartbeat and your mindset towards life and what spiritual truths are important to you. I pray, God, that we would uh, learn another one from you, one that you want us to follow just like you want the disciples to follow. And um, this one, like all the parables, is not the easiest to figure out. It seems clear at first, but as you dive in, it can get kind of tricky. So I pray, God, for your Spirit's anointing to, to only see the truth that you want to be conveyed and... Uh, and again, just help the church see the truth as well, so that when we get into dialogue, we can have a great discussion about who you are and what you, how you want us to live and how, we, how you want us to rethink our lives. So we look forward to our time together, and we uh, look forward to a, a great time of encouragement and strengthening in our faith. In Christ's name, amen. Well, now we are on our sixth parable, I believe, in our sermon series. And we're coming to a close end here just because of the season of Christmas approaching. Just I want to remind you for the sixth time what a parable is. <laughs> a parable is a fictional story designed to communicate a spiritual truth by way of comparison. And I know I've said that week after week, but it's important because if we get the comparison right, we get the parable right. So our job today is to uncover the, the original intention and meaning that Jesus had for his disciples back then. And of course, it's not possible without first understanding the context before the parable occurs. And so thankfully, unlike, uh, th- well thankfully the, the context is made pretty clear in verse 1 of 18. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. Now at first glance, you might think Jesus is encouraging us to pray continually in all areas and categories of the Christian life. Now while that, might, that teaching may be found in other places in the New Testament, I don't believe that was Jesus' intention here at this moment in dialogue with the disciples. The reason for this is the context before this parable, verse 1, and the context after the parable in verse 8. If you look at these, it has to do with the second coming of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 24 of chapter 17. They will say to you, speaking to the disciples, 
uh, look here and look there. Sorry, oh, sorry, I'm in verse 23. Never mind, verse 24. <laughs> For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Okay, so just like lightning, in terms of its brightness and its, its, its you know, how fast it comes, here is how Jesus is going to come. Look at verse 30. After he's spoken about God's judgment over the people in Noah's day and Lot's day, and how they were both rescued and spared from disaster, look what he says in verse 30. It will be just the same on that day that the Son of Man is revealed. Okay, so the whole section, 22 to 37, is all about the end times, the second coming of Jesus. Now look in verse 8, after he gives the parable of the widow and the judge. I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on this earth? The context that the parable is sandwiched in between is the coming of Christ and the coming of Christ. Okay? So when Jesus says, uh, I want you to pray at all times and not lose heart, it has to be seen through this lens. It has to be. Because the context de 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 demands it on both ends. So let's dive in then and figure out how Jesus gets his point across in terms of praying at all times and not losing heart in light of the second coming. Look at verse 2 and 3. In a certain city, there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. Now, when we first read this, it might seem strange to us that Jesus uses an illustration of a judge and a widow to teach about prayer. But we know from Jesus' other parables, he only uses characters and, and uh, scenes and things that are familiar within the Jewish context, right? Fig trees, minas, um, all these things, they're all known to the Jewish people. Well, let me just say that judges and widows were familiar characters in Jesus' day. You see, judges were appointed through the land of Israel to handle civil matters and settle disputes. So you know how the police often handles things on your behalf, and then you go and go to court? Not in those days. You would go straight to the judge if you had an issue. So if I had an issue, say with Dave, we'd go straight to the judge. There's no police to handle our matters. But the, Jew, the Jews in Jesus' day knew full well what God's standards were for being a judge. Because he'd laid it out in the Old Testament. There's a cool passage in 2 Chronicles 19, verse 5. Jehoshaphat is king of Judah, and he's just gone and appointed judges all over the land to handle civil matters and trials. And listen to the description of what the judge was to be like. He said to the judges, Consider what you are doing, for you do not judge for man, but for the Lord, who is with you when you render judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. So quality number one. Number two, uh, be very careful what you do, for the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness, partiality, or the taking of a bribe. Really, what Jesus was saying, is, as a judge, you're to fulfill the greatest commandment, or what God intended in the Old Testament, you're to fulfill the greatest commandment. And is Micah here? Did he go downstairs? Micah, tell me, you told me at the table, what, what is the first commandment? What was the one you repeated from Mark today to Jackson? Um, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and 
Mark 12:30. Good boy. Okay, right? That was the first, that's what he, and then love your neighbor as yourself. There's a vertical component to being a judge, to fear the God, which is to obey all his commands, and a horizontal component to being a judge, to respect men, to take care of their needs. Don't take bribes, don't show partiality, don't play favorites and all these things. Now, Israel was very familiar with what God wanted, but also very familiar with what God, uh, with crooked judges in their past. Amos 5 verse 12. This is a prophet speaking to Israel. Uh, God speaking through the prophet. He says this, For I know how many are your offenses and how great are your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. So Israel is very familiar with unjust judges and very familiar with what God's design was for judges. Now why is this important? Look at the kind of guy we have here in our parable. Verse 2, there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. He was, had no interest in ruling according to God's ways, according to his commands. He was completely indifferent to the needs of the people. He was the kind of judge you would hate to stand before because he took the law into his own hands. Truth was found within himself. That's a dangerous place to start as a judge. But you know what's crazy? It wasn't only other people's assessments of him that he was like this. He knew it himself. Look at verse 4b, halfway through verse 4, going on to 5. Even though I do not fear God nor respect men, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. He self-identifies himself as a non-God-fearer and a person who doesn't respect man. He flat out tells it. That's his, that's his biography. That's his resume. Everyone thinks of them that way. He knows it and he has no shame in declaring it. So he recognized his own corruption and didn't give two rips about it. So again, Jesus using this unrighteous judge was very familiar to a Jewish person because he characterized the men in Amos chapter 5. Widows were also very familiar within the land of Israel. You know, when you and I think of widows, we simply define them usually as women who have lost their spouses through death and have not been remarried. That's a widow to us. That was true in Jesus' day as well. But in that culture, widows took on an even broader definition than that. You see, if you lived back then, Widows represented the vulnerable members of Jewish society. They were marginalized often, they were easily taken advantage of, and they were known to be poor and often ran the risk of becoming destitute. That's why God in the Old Testament wanted mercy and compassion to be extended to them and had laws to protect them. For example, in Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6, did you know this? If a, woman hus if a woman's husband died, and they had no children. It was up to the brother, brother of the husband who had passed away, to take her as a wife. If not, a distant relative or next in kin could have. The reason for this, not only to provide an heir for the, for the laws of the inheritance of the land and so on, but also to make sure she didn't fall into poverty and to go into destitution. She was well taken care of as she came under another family. 
In Deuteronomy 24:19, at harvest time, widows could glean in the fields of grain and gather leftover grapes and olives. Again, why would only widows and orphans and foreigners, be, which is what the, what the law said, be in that category? Because they couldn't provide for themselves, typically, and that's why God had to give these commands. Failure to protect a widow and show compassion would mean that you risk God taking vengeance on you. Look at Exodus 22. 22. You must not exploit a widow or an orphan. If you exploit them in any way they cry out, and they cry out to me, then I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will blaze against you and I will kill you with the sword. Then your wives will be widows and your children will be fatherless. Yikes. You want to mess around with God in terms of taking care of the, the, um, the marginalized in society? You have to face his wrath. So God's design was for widows to receive protection, to receive justice, and mercy and compassion. Clearly, that was not going on with the widow in verse 3. There was a widow in that city and she had an opponent who had gone against her and she kept coming to him over and over and over for legal protection and was not getting it. Now, two observations I want you to not miss here. One, notice this woman is suffering injustice. She's suffering injustice. Not only is an opponent taking advantage of her, for her situation and her status as a widow and wrongly going after her, injustice is also occurring from the judge as well because she had to keep coming to him and because he kept failing over and over to provide her with the justice she was deserved, it meant that she became a permanent fixture in the courthouse. She's completely treated unjustly. This, this opponent comes after her unfairly, takes her to court, the judge will not give her a fair shake at the at justice, and so she keeps coming back and coming back and coming back, and he will not meet the demands that God has in Second Chronicles for her to be taken care of. Second observation, notice that there's no mention of the specific nature of what she needs protection from. Like the, 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 what, what the opponent or the, the accusation or what she's been going to court for hasn't been mentioned. It doesn't tell you whether she's been defrauded financially or she's being harassed. And here's why that's important. The key for Jesus is not so much the nature of the, of the offense, but her persistence in trying to get justice. It's the persistence in her trying to get justice. And how many times she come before the judge to plead her case, we don't know. But what's important about this widow is she didn't let her status in society, her sad state of affairs, or her victim mentality, if she had one, affect her resolve. She was a kind of woman that would not take no for an answer. And we know her persistence paid off. Look at verse 4. For a while he was unwilling, but afterwards he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. <laughs> you know what's really cool about studying the Greek words sometimes? And just so you know, it's really easy to do. I, it's, you can, uh, yeah, you don't have to speak Greek to, to learn Greeks, like words. If you ever want to learn how to do it, I can show you. But the Greek word for wear me out is amazing. 
Do you know it's a boxing term? It means to give someone a black eye, to be punched out. Okay? It's the same used by Paul, same word used by Paul in 1 Corinthians 9.27, describing his ministry. He says, I strike a blow, so there's the word wear me out, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Now the blow he's talking about to his body is not self-harm, he's not doing penance or anything crazy, right? He's not beating himself. What he means is he's knocking out, he's punching out any fleshly desires and temptations that would lead him away from winning souls to Christ. So he's putting others' needs above his own. And he's fighting the flesh to, 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 to not fulfill his ministry in that way. This widow is so persistent that the judge's assessment of her is as if he's encountered her in a boxing ring. It's like he's gone toe-to-toe with Mike Tyson. He's getting the snot beat out of him. And it wears him down. And he can't handle the beating anymore. And he says, fine, I'll give you justice. Now that's important for us not to miss. The reason for why the judge changed his mind was not because he accepted a bribe. It wasn't because he was concerned with his reputation in the community. It was because she was relentless in her pursuit for justice when she was being unjustly treated. She was being unjustly treated and she wanted justice and her relentlessness is what made him change her mind. Now it's with this in mind that Jesus moves to his application in verse 6 and 7. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. In other words, learn a lesson from the unrighteous judge, his comments. And he said, um, Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. It's clear now from the passage that the judge is a representative of God and the widow is a representative of followers of Jesus Christ. Now, it's important, again, not to over-spiritualize and under-spiritualize parables. How Jesus uses the unrighteous judge as an example of God is got to be careful here. In no way is he comparing um, the judge's injustice, unfairness, and lack of mercy to the way God is in terms of character. That's not the aspect of the judge that he's trying to compare. The aspect of the judge he wants us to, to pick up on is this, that the only aspect of the judge's behavior that resembles God is the rewarding of persistence. Right? That's the only part he picks up on. God is like the judge in that he resembles the fact that he will reward persistence in crying out to him, in prayer, in the midst of injustice. So he uses a lesser to greater argument. So his logic sounds something like this. If even an unjust judge will eventually grant justice to a widow who keeps coming to him, how much more will God bring about justice to those who belong to him and cry out to him day and night? The answer? Clear in verse 8. I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. He'll do it quickly. Read Revelation. Read Matthew 24. Read 1 Thessalonians. You'll see how quick indeed he will rescue us from injustice. But then it leaves us with a question. However, 
When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This issue of faith has to be answered in light of what Jesus, I think, said in verse 1, and by looking at the widow's character. Notice he says that we're to always pray and not lose heart. Not lose heart. Okay? That's key right there. Not lose heart. Second thing is the widow's behavior. Remember, we are like the widows in the midst of a lawsuit, right? We're suffering unjustly under the hands of opponents. We're not getting justice in this world, are we? <laughs> you can't speak freely anymore. Places in Iran, they lose their life for even carrying a Bible. There's no justice in the world for Christians. It's going to get tougher and tougher and tougher as the approaching of the last days occur. What are we doing? We're waiting patiently for the Lord to render a verdict, aren't we? God, come and bring justice. Bring justice to the situation. So we, leave, we live as believers in a soon but not yet reality. We understand judgment is coming. We understand he's coming to redeem us, to, to, to just like he did in the days of Noah, to, to deal with the ungodly behavior. But it's not coming yet. So here's the thing. It's a realistic possibility then, is that we wait in anticipation for the Lord, that we can easily get unnerved and unsettled. And things like persecution and unfair treatment can lead us to falling away from God. This is a realistic possibility. This is why in Matthew 24, in the exact same passage, in terms of describing the exact same events of the way he's going to come and light lightning, the Noah, the Lot, all that stuff, he makes this declaration. He makes this declaration, which is not in Luke, which is in Matthew. He says, but, when, but the one who endures through this will be saved. The one who doesn't endure will not be saved. It's identical passage. Just one extra verse from Matthew. It's easy to lose heart in the midst of injustice, isn't it? That's why the widow is such an incredible um, story for us. You see, she could have given up in the midst of unfair treatment. Like as a widow, with that status, and knowing that you have no rights basically in that world unless you belong to a man, right? Could you imagine getting no for an answer at court? Your natural tendency was like, well, I might as well not go back anymore. I'm never going to see it. This woman wasn't like that. She went back and she went back and she went back. She kept enduring. She would not lose heart. She kept fighting, fighting, fighting. Then when she'd get in front of the judge, she'd cry out, cry out, cry out, plead her case. This is really important because this is a realistic possibility. Paul knew this in Thessalonica. Paul establishes a church plant there and... Uh, he leaves. And he tells them before he leaves, you're going to get persecuted for the sake of Christ before I go. Sure enough, they do. He hears through a, le he hears, uh, through a letter or something or s some other means that they've been persecuted. And Paul's terrified. He's like, he doesn't know if they've endured or if they've ditched God. He has no idea. So he tries to get to, to, to Thessalonica, but he can't. He says, Satan's you know, prevented me from going. And whatever, you know, that's another story. How, what does that look like? But he couldn't get there. And he recognized Satan being the, the adversary. And what's interesting is he sends Timothy to find out how they do. And here's a report. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and our labors might have been in vain. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. 
He has told us that you've always been pleasant, had pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distresses and persecution, we are encouraged about you because of your faith. Jesus asked the question, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? We can learn a huge lesson from the widow. You and I need to not give up in the midst of injustice. We have to cry out through prayer for the Lord's return to bring justice and to rescue us. And we need to learn from the widow to stick with him, knowing that he is coming back and that we are praying for his return. So what can we learn from this parable? Number one, here's what I think the point of the parable is, and you, you know, you and I can discuss this in the dialogue. I spent quite a bit of time trying to work this out. Um, so here's what I think here's the parable is about. As believers facing injustice in this world, we need to be continually seeking the Lord in prayer for the coming of his kingdom. Here's why, church. It's at that time justice is served. Listen to, listen to this again. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay over them? I tell you, he will bring about, them, bring about justice quickly. They're crying out to him day and night for justice in an unjust world. Part of our heartbeat as Christians is to be praying for the Lord's return. Do you know what's hard about preaching and studying for sermons is that God always has to get a hold of me before he gets a hold of you. <laughs> Nothing goes past my heart or mind before it goes past your heart or mind because I'm in advance preparing this stuff. I got convicted this week. If I was to put my prayer life for a month on this PowerPoint and you were to look at it, you would see prayers for people, prayers for circumstances, and things in this world right now. Do you know what you would hardly ever see? Maybe even never see in my prayer life? A prayer for the coming of the kingdom. <clears throat> what's interesting is, what's the Lord's prayer? The disciples say, teach us how to pray. He says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Like Jesus simplifies the prayer into a few categories of life. That's one of them. If you can learn anything from this parable, which I learned this week, is as you prayed from now on, you pray, you start praying for the coming of the kingdom and vindication of his people and that justice be served in an unjust world. That's the heartbeat of Jesus Christ. So how is your prayer life? Does it look like mine in this area? Or are you persistent like the widow? Second lesson, remembering that Christ is coming to administer justice is key in helping us persevere and not losing heart. If you know that God is coming, and you know when you look at Lot's day, look at Noah's day, Look at all these days in which there was a warning of judgment and it, and it actually came to fruition when the righteous people 
believed it would come to fruition, and they persevered in their faith. The unrighteous people ignored the word of God and said, there's no judgment, there's no judgment, and they were wiped out. Looking back at the past, looking back at the past of Noah, Lot, people like that, and all the things that, like even, like, you know, how Israel was taken out by Babylon, people, all those warnings, gives us a strength to not lose heart, knowing that he is going to come, and he's not going to delay over us, he's going to bring about justice quickly. So in the moments when I don't want to persevere, when I want to lose heart, and I, and I want to become unfaithful, because we all, all go through moments like that, Every single one of us has doubts. Every one of us has to work through these issues at some point in our lives. We have to remember that Christ is coming to minister justice and He's coming quickly and that will help us in our perseverance. I was thinking, you know, what else? This is off, off the parable now. What other areas of life and other ways can we be strengthened to persevere and not lose heart? How, how, how can we live our lives and what can we do practically speaking as believers so that when Christ comes, he finds faithful here now? I want to suggest three things on top of remembering the, the fact that he is just and he's active in history. I want to suggest three other things that can help you in this area of perseverance. Number one, the renewing of your mind through God's word. Romans 12 two says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them by truth, your word is truth. So the renewal of your mind is linked to God's truth. Why is that important? A lot of people that I know that have ditched God in this lifetime is because they've believed lies. They believe lies. They've got a version of God in their head and a version of God, how they should be treated in this world in terms of justice that doesn't line up with God's ways. And so when it occurs, they go, Well, well I'm not going to serve a God like that. I'm out of here. I'm not going to persevere for God like that. I'm out of here. But if you know the truth of Scripture and what He actually came for and the purposes for His coming and the purpose of ways to, to do in your life, those things can be er eradicated and give you strength to persevere. The more you know of God's ways and the more those replace the lies, the, long, the more likely you are going to persevere into truth and steadfastness. Number two, get yourself involved in Christian community. Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Now what's the hope we profess? It's coming back, right? It's coming back to get us. We're going to be with him in eternity. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together. As some are in the habit of doing so people aren't meeting regularly in Christian community. Encouraging one another. Now watch this. I love this line. All the day as you see the day approaching. What's the day? The return of Jesus Christ. So in the community of gathering of people, it's to be a time of encouragement and a time of spurring one another on. Think of like when you, when you, like Jaden, you know about this with a horse, right? Like you spur the horse to make him go quicker and to make him do what you want, Right? So here we are, we're to, spur, we're to put spurs in one another to encourage us as we wait for the day approaching. This is why Bible studies in our church, men's groups, women's groups, all these things in here are so important. We are not created to function as lone rangers. 
When I've never had a coffee in my... Here's, I've been many times in ministry down and out and depressed and struggling. Lots of times in ministry. Do you know every single time I get together with one of you for a, for a conversation or a coffee, I leave revitalized. Every single time, no matter how bad I'm doing. And even if you come in a bad state, I still leave strengthened. Because I get a chance to speak truth to you, and when I walk away, I go, why aren't I doing the same truth to myself? <laughs> I'm in the depressed state, and you are, because we're both believing lies. So when I give you the truth of God, I go, why am I, you know, what, like, you know what I mean? Like, I should, I should like, punch my, like, punch my, give myself a black eye, wear myself out with my own biblical counsel, right? Don't function as lone rangers in, in the community. You will not have a chance of, of, of surviving as, 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 well, I shouldn't say that. You could. You'll have a greater chance of surviving and persevering for the Lord in community. Finally, this would be rare, but it is in the Bible, so I can't ignore it. A supernatural encounter with the Holy Spirit. In Acts, the church is fearful. They quote Old Testament scriptures in their prayer meeting, 120 in the upper room. There's a prayer meeting going on. They're quoting scriptures of how the Gentiles are raging and, uh, and are coming against um, the God's people. And so they're scared. And they cry out to God. 120 in one room, a giant prayer meeting for strength and boldness to persevere. Because Jesus has just died. And now the Holy Spirit's fallen. And now they're going to have to actually declare the very person that they killed. So identifying with him now means that your life's on the line. You might as well wear a big target on your chest. And after they prayed, the place where they met was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. A supernatural encounter with the Holy Spirit can bring boldness to you and help you persevere. And maybe in the last days, as... We may face them, we may not, compared to other generations, but, you know, the, 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 probably the Holy Spirit will be active in very supernatural ways in those days. So again, these are different ways in which you can strengthen yourself to persevere for the Lord.